today we're going on a journey and it's back to the 1980s to the start of our journey and let's just paint a picture it's 1980 and russia is the ussr and they roll their tanks into afghanistan and the americans aren't happy and they back the mujahideen and osama bin laden to fight the russians these kind of things wouldn't happen nowadays now nah, you'd never hear anything like that but we're back in the 1980s and that's the picture that's the news we're hearing on our radio every night and on our tv screens and i've put you back in the 1980s because today i'm talking to a man who is the most famous developer you've never heard of. His name is Damien Scattergood. Hello, Damien. Hello, Brian. How are you doing? That's a very interesting introduction. <laughs> so you are the most famous developer you never heard of in your own words. Um, yes. So tell us, uh, what were you doing at the turn of the 70s into the 80s in computing that uh, makes you a famous Irish gamer? programmer very good well, well i would you believe at that time i think i was about 17 and 18 and like every 17 and 18 year old i wanted to be famous so uh, uh, and at the time uh computers were starting to come out uh you had the likes of the the zx80 the, you know there was the you know the the pet and the few other mad machines like that uh, and i decided right i was going to start playing games and i started playing games like every teenager did and then i said right i can write these things and I'll get into doing this. Uh, and within a couple of years, to be very brief, I um, started to get some really cool contracts and I finished up working for Michael Jackson uh, doing uh, Moonwalker, the video game of the film, uh, which was a mad experience. Uh, and uh, I had a number of top 10 hits in the UK. So I was actually quite a famous programmer, as they say, right? I had, a, if you look at it, I was there, I would have been one of the, uh, uh, the named uh, people on the scene uh, uh, so working from basically my back bedroom out of uh, Baldoyle in uh, Dublin 13 I managed to, be, to become one of the, the top game developers in UK and Ireland you know and I would say probably the world but you know the uh, at the time that was the world right as you say the, the 80s was a very strange time uh, we didn't have the internet so and I can talk to you about that at another stage and how we communicated with people um, and that sort of so Worked, I worked for a lot of people, and at the time, people were subcontractors or contractors. So so I didn't get necessarily all the personal fame. So, yes, people would know my games and would say, oh, yeah, that was a cool game. You know, uh, you know everybody would, what, can, you can look back and you can look at, look at Moonwalker and such like uh, Vigilante was the other big arcade game I did. Um, so, yeah, very famous. But if you actually search for Damon Scattergood, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, most people would not not know me. And now, obviously, with the, with the way the, the business has gone, you know, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, way in the background now. Yeah, so you're now in Scattergood Studios, and we'll we'll talk about that later. But uh, let's go back to the the very beginning. Then you're about sixteen or seventeen, and do I take it that you got a particular computer and started on that, or was your interest? Does it even predate that? Were you interested from afar? Were you reading library books? Were you, you know, following things on television about computing that your interest was peaked and you were going to get a computer? Where did it all start? Well, it sort of all happened very rapidly. If you think about the 80s, the, the, the people were sort of, Pong was sort of the first game. And I think there was the, the Atari, there was an Atari games console that you used to get to plug into your television. And we sort of picked up one of those one, one day. My dad was very good for it, bringing us around markets and stuff. Like that. And we picked up one, just played around with it and said, sort of, yeah, hey, these are great. And then at the time we had a couple, 
that's the one. How did you get one of them, Brian? <laughs> it's yours if you want it. Oh, actually, yeah, that would be that would, that would be absolutely perfect for my collection. But that's that's a worth fortune, Brian, right? Um, but yeah, in terms of uh, they were the big thing, uh, and we had one of those, and then. We were saying, well, I wonder what else was going on. And then we had picked up some computer magazines, I think, you know, from the weekly trip to Easton's, as everybody used to do. Uh, and then we bought a ZX81, which the Sinclair ZX81 was the sort of the first pro computer pro, com first computer that sort of came out that was commercial, available to people, real people, if you know what I mean. There were things like the Commodore PET. Like, just to give an example where I saw this, there was a few of my friends. And we, at the time, you know, what you would do is go out with people for the, you know, for fun. We'd go, well, let's go into the computer shops and see what's going on. So what we used to do is we'd go into town, you know, as, as kids, you know, 15 to 16 year old kids, we'd go into some of the computer shops and literally spend a day there just typing in little programs into the computers to sort of see what they did. Uh, but one, once I bought my ZX81 for Christmas, my dad got that for Christmas and that was like a massive deal, you know, for, uh, uh, for us. Actually, just a, a, a funny story just tiny one before that the biggest biggest deal in our house was the the christmas before our computer i got a calculator and that was the first piece of technology we ever got in the in the house and you know for, even for, for all my friends like oh, damon has a calculator you know it was like yeah look out this thing you know i still have it believe it or not but um so from the zx81 playing the games uh, a lot of the obviously there wasn't a market for games developers so they're they're there were no, it was very, very few games you could buy. There's only a handful, five or six games you could buy. So what people used to do is they would buy magazines and in a lot of magazines, they would have type in programs. So you literally would have to type the program in and hopefully uh, it wouldn't crash on you. Occasionally they would crash and you'd have to retype it in again. But we started from there and then that started and got me learning how to program. And that was the beginning where I started to write very, very simple games. And was was games always your direction because i'll share something about myself is that i would have dabbled in similar spectrums maybe later models and obviously school was teaching you basic and they yes. had a i had i think they had an apple with basic yeah. on it every school in ireland when apple came into cork got gifted a computer for a computer room so it was your computer room yeah the apple computer. tv and we, I think we were taught basic on it, but I, I'm going to say, I always had this kind of probably very wrong idea that gaming was beneath processors and that coding was more uh, highbrow and, and I wouldn't write games. I, I, I wrote databases. I, I wrote things yeah. like interpreters <coughs> for Morse code and audio things, but I wouldn't do games. Maybe I was just misguided, but I thought gaming was, frivolous and fun and it was beneath computing yeah i look that that's a that would be a very accurate sort of view of 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 the time you know um games were very much frowned upon you know and it was quite difficult because you know we were just rebels we were the messers you know but in terms of you know uh from a technical point of view the serious coding games was close is closer to the hardware in terms of making things happen so you know if you want you know lots of things flying around the place that takes Im an immense amount of of uh, uh, processing power so you've really got to be very close you got to be in machine code you got to be talking directly to the chips and it takes uh, th so the coding is really really good now that doesn't dis distract anything from databases or anything like that they do do use massive amount of power but it's not as an, an immediate power so they are sort of two different spaces 
I know. So at the time in the eighties, like you know, games was just was just a hobby. Things that people did, right? And if you if you were a real computer person, you were doing some proper stuff, you know. As they would say, you know. And I, I've had that conversation, had that argument with many people, Ryan, right? In the eighties, right? Now it's sort of a different case, and it is um, one of the things. Once we started, once the games business established itself. Um, then the sort of the world changed. It was difficult uh, at the early stages. We had lots of knockbacks. When I started to get try to get funding to start my first company, and even the companies I worked for, you know, um, you know, I can tell you very briefly. I remember being laughed out of the IDA uh, uh, headquarters. I went in to meet them one day, looking for funding, and literally I was laughed out of place. You know, saying nobody is going to be investing in games. You know, and I. You know, Ten years later, different set, different sense of the world, right? And that that's one of the reasons why my uh, I stopped developing games, believe it or not, because I had pushed my my games company as far as I could physically do on my own, and that was Scats Computer Graphics at the time. So, um, and and then I left the games industry and I went into sort of more commercial programming. We sort of, but I'm coming back to now with Scatterwood Studios. I'm bringing back some of my old stuff. I mean, the world has changed, and also the environment has changed as well even in the last six years believe it or not the world has changed um because you know the at the we're sort of skipping a few different pieces going backwards and forwards here brian as well but um one of the other killer so there was what i call the first wave so the first wave where the guys like myself and there's a number of us um and you could almost there, there was a handful of hardcore really good game developers uh, and we were, it was to meet we used to communicate so you know meetings for example right we actually physically meet you know we, we were i was a member of the irish amateur computer club right um we used to meet up in paris hotel up in uh, town right uh, on a saturday morning uh because we had no internet you know and you'd have a chat you'd meet people like yourself you meet people guys what are you doing what are you writing how did you make that happen and when we talk to each other, share ideas, share code. And we used to write stuff, like physically write on paper, as they say, right? I have code still here. So because uh, the early days, you know, we didn't have assemblers and stuff like that. We had to write a lot of stuff down and then type it into the computers. Uh, but anyway, that was sort of wave one, right? Wave one then sort of came, expanded a bit. And there were we, we contacted some of the bigger games companies that were evolving in the UK. And we sort of started to bring in contracts here. Uh, and that sort of evolved for, for to a couple of things. There was, there was the likes of New Concepts who I worked for, which was a 100% Irish company. Uh, and they were really, really inventive guys. They created the first sports simulator. Uh, BBC recently did a, an article on us. Uh, so we were way ahead of our time. The stuff we were working on was amazing at the time. Right? It was basically full simulators, but we were working on, you know, really bad machines, right? You know, if you, if you look in perspective, right? Then there was the likes of Emerald Software that came in. That was a joint venture between some of the guys in the UK. Uh, MarTech in the UK had come in, invested in, in, in Emerald. So it was a bunch of our strong Irish guys and some, some UK influence. And we sort of, that was wave two, right? Then coming out of that, the Nintendo, the first PlayStation started to came out, come out. And that really sort of messed up the market because before that, you could produce your own work on cassette or or floppy disk, and you could sell those. So, you know, I could sell basically from my own bedroom, I could copy disks and sell thousands of disks and do your thing, right? So that was very, very good, right? But when Nintendo came out, everything had to be on the cartridges. So you had to get their approval. You had to go to them to get something published. And I know one of the challenges we had when, when we were in Emerald, we were trying to uh, develop games for that system. And um, 
they were saying, look, oh, it's coming up to Christmas. We're going to have two shoot 'em ups and two racing games or whatever, right? Now, that meant if there were 20 companies and there were loads of people developing then doing shoot 'em ups, only two years we're going to get released for Christmas. So we were going, well, what happens if we don't meet the grade? Well, if you don't meet the grade, you're gone, right? So um, so we, I just left the business. I was saying, look, you know, we can't keep operating in this. But now, as I was saying, nowadays we're on, you know, the fourth and fifth waves where with the likes of Steam and Google Play and all of that sort of stuff, the, the environment is now open again. So it is actually possible. And that's why uh, Scattergood Studios is back again. It's possible for me to take my old code, write new games and publish them myself. And that's sort of the direction I'm doing. You know, I can do it for, for, as a, you know, at a very easy pace, you know, no mad pressure and we can we can do stuff. And that's that's effectively what I'm doing. Even some of my old games, like uh, the uh, I have uh, Radical Rob, which is my big Amiga game at the time. Uh, There's a game I, I own because I've developed completely on uh, Scott's Computer Graphics. I've re-released that and it's available to buy now on itch.io. It's an Amiga game, but because of the advances now on computers, you have plenty of emulators. So you can play it on a PC. You can download the emulator for free. You can play the game then. You buy the game and play it. Or you can download it, put it on a floppy and play it on a real Amiga. You mentioned the Amiga. Is Amiga when it went 32-bit for the first time and it also kind of stayed on the non-Nintendo kind of side of cartridges that they were able to get their own stuff into the the device? Uh, that's a good question, Brian. I'm not 100% certain. I t- it probably is because I remember that the big, big machines at the time, it was the Sega Mega Drive, I think was a 32-bit machine, I think, right? Uh, and then the Amiga was sort of the first big big thing. The big thing with the Amiga, which was which was absolutely killer was the blitter chip that they had introduced commodore introduced and that was absolutely amazing right effectively you know for in plain english that gave uh, a dedicated chip for graphics so you could make anything happen instantly up to that you know to do is make you know characters and sprites and stuff move we had to write all of that in code and there was there was lots of complicated you know uh, sprite routines and double buffering and triple buffering, mad stuff that we had to do. But all of this now, it's on a chip and you just go display and bang, you know, everything would just appear at lightning speed. It was absolutely phenomenal machine, right? It was actually used by uh, Channel 4, believe it or not, the Amiga was for a lot of their, some of their graphics, believe it or not, some of the, some of the game shows they were they were, they were were uh, running. Uh, I think it was, uh, not 100% certain, but I think that catchphrase was, uh, was had used them at one stage. But there's a couple of, uh, there was some, basic broadcast quality t- uh, graphics software that was produced uh, and that was quite that was really good because it was the first time if you had asked me to do a tv graphic you're at a hundred grand now you're talking about oh, well, i will do it for 400 because you can do it on this machine you know and that was that was a major step change so you can imagine what effect that had on the uh, on you know on the industry we're talking about a period when there was a TV program on Sunday night on RTE called Murphy's Micro Quiz. Micro Quizm, yes. Which was- oh, would you believe? I know the man. I, I know the man. I was like, uh, um, uh, the, uh, I actually used to work for him. Uh, uh, really, really nice man, Mr. Keenan was his name. And uh, he, uh, that was all done on the BBC Micro, believe it or not. And they all coded it up, right? And did the graphics, right? But he was, he got involved where I got to work on him was he got involved with uh, Phelan from Mosney. I don't even remember Mosney, but Mosney set up the first computer center in Ireland, which was the Atari Training Center. So they had linked up with Atari, and it was a big thing. And they brought Atari, they built a uh, a training center in uh, Mosney Holiday Camp, 
right? And uh, you could go down, and, you know, the kids, when the kids were there, you could, you know, you go to the swimming pool in the morning and in the afternoon, you could come up and learn how computers worked. And I was one of the teachers. Uh, and uh, um, and uh, and the guy. So that's where we sort of met, and we all did our little thing. We used to drive up, and you know, talk about the old days, Brian. Right? We uh, he used to pick me up in uh, in town in Santry. Uh, so I had to get the bus from Baldoyle to Santry, and he picked me up there, and he drive me there to uh, uh, to Mosny every day. Uh, so that was like you know. <laughs> I don't know, you can work that out. It's a couple of hour trip, right? Every day. So every day you pick me up about six o'clock in the morning. We go up, teach all the kids and come back. It's great fun. Just to rewind it again, and um, we'll rewind and go forward like we're trying to get this tape to load on this particular show. Yes. <laughs> but uh, talk to me about 8-bit. 8-bit was kind of the, the starting point. And in terms of 8-bit from from the kind of coding and the processor, but also 8-bit from from the the pixel and the the 8-bit kind of color and graphics. Was that the, like the essence is these little men running around with um, arms and legs, they were drawn in 8-bit and you were limited to two, five, six colors, I think. Oh, Danny, I wish. Oh, you wish, he says, right? So it depends on the machine, right? So um, there was a... On the spectrum, for example, you you are limited to actually only to uh, eight colors, you know, and you can have them bright or dark, right? Uh, and it was 320 pixels by, I think it was 192. So very, very low resolution graphics, right? On the Commodore 64, I think you had, uh, you had more, you certainly had more colors. Uh, I can't remember the full color, but it might've been 32 colors, I think, on the Commodore. Uh, but it was very restricted. And that, and that sort of generated its own pressures uh, because one, you had low resolution, but you also had the same thing. Sound was also very restricted. The spectrum only could make a beep or a click sound. So if you wanted to make an explosion, um, you had to code that by writing uh, pro- a program to make an explosion. So for example, if it, I actually wrote it, wrote, I, I had my own sort of thing. So if you look at an explosion, it goes bang, 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 right? You, you write, it's a series of clicks. So, you know, just for, for, your, for, your, for your listeners, it goes, right? So. What I would write is I'd write a, a, a hiss that would send random uh, bits out to the speaker, which would just go white noise, right? But that, but the so random bits, but in the in the in the, in this that I have from a table, so it would go, and then that would be part A, part B will be, part C will be, and then to to make it look like it was simultaneous, you could only do one thing at a time. So it was move the man an inch play the first part of the sound, move the man again, play the second part of the sound, move the man again, play the third part of the sound. So in reality, it looked like pew, and you, know, you hear the sound and have an explosion. But that was quite difficult to do. On the later machines, they did bring out an, a, an AY chip, which had some some uh, good sound on it. We had, we had three, three, uh, three channel sound on it and you could do proper, proper music. Uh, but in the early machines, uh, it was quite difficult because now we could make it go beep and you could do you could actually play proper music but you had to be really really good so and as we started to write solid solid games I and mean, you know the bigger games we 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 broke up into sort of teams so for example what i i wrote for uh, emerald i wrote their sound processor to be able to break sounds up and make make it sound like it was doing multiple sounds at the same time even though it wasn't um and I did that. I also did the security loader for them as well. So um, the fast loaders and things like that. I, I coded that for them as well. And a few other bits and pieces. So we do, we do, we would do different things like that. Uh, and that's where you saw you, you, you got the, the, the camaraderie and the teamwork of 
you know, you'd find a guy, yeah, how did you make that sound? How, oh, you know, that's you'd, you'd, every game you did, there was always a new limit that you pushed. Um, so were you writing in machine code or basic? I can remember these kind of peaks yeah. and pokes that you could kind of reference the the machine in a particular way. And there was tables of things of, of how to make yeah. do certain things it wasn't it wasn't designed to do in a basic way. Yeah, we were writing in machine code. So, you know, so day one, we started typing in the numbers. So, you know, if you wanted to load a register with zero, load A with zero, you know, so I would write that down on a piece of paper and then I'd write in that is 65-1, right? And then you type those numbers in. That's with day one. And one of the things I was saying, this was the best part about the industry, Brian, it accelerated really quickly. So it didn't take me very long to work out that that was a pain to do every day. So we would start working on our own little assembler programs. And within about a year, there were some basic assembler programs where we could type in, you know, the basic code and then it would compile it in. And then within in two years, we actually had, uh, we, we, we sourced a great company in the UK called PDS. Uh, I think it was run by a guy called Fergus Gloucester. Uh, and we run on PCs like the, oh, with the old ones you have here behind me. So you could write for a Spectrum, an Amstrad, or a Commodore on these machines. You then would compile the code, and then with an RS-232 cable coming out of the back, plug it into the Spectrum and download the code onto the Spectrum and run it and debug it. So that was a pretty impressive piece of kit. Was the cassette as a form of moving uh, data to consumer a very ineffective and buggy kind of uh, people would spend hours loading something and then it would fail. That kind of traditional kind of stereotype of how bad the things were. W would they have done better to have uh, been more, you know, better than magnetic tape? Uh, no, I actually think it was the right thing to use at the time because um, it was chosen for all of its faults. It was chosen for uh, its popularity. So at the time, everybody had a cassette recorder in their bedroom doing, you know, uh, you know, copying music off the, the radio and doing their thing, you know. Um, so uh, um, so everybody had that. So it was a very available format, right? And, and it was very, very cheap to produce and sell and distribute. So it was, so it was really, if you had gone, like, you know, if you look, look back in the 80s and say, you remember when v, VHS and, and Betamax and all that sort of stuff came out in the video recorder market, and it was like, everybody knows Betamax is better, but it didn't win because it was, it was doesn't suit the market, you know what I mean? And it's the same thing, you know, there were like the Amiga, for example, slowly died. It had the best hardware around the place. But it was just at the time, it was just in a space where, you know, the world wasn't right. And then the likes of the Nintendo started to come, the PlayStation started to come out. And it started to have people saying, well, if I just go with the standard thing, I don't have to worry about all that. Um, the other thing about tapes as well, it's very good nostalgia. Like, you know, if you look at uh, an old cassette card, so one of these, here's an old game, right? One of my favorite games, right? Agent X, right? But uh, uh, no, I didn't write this, but this absolutely amazing game, right? But uh it's actually fun to have these because you'd like to get, they'd have cool graphics on them. And you had that little sort of, you know, you're a touch something, you know? So I actually like that. And if you look at any of the, there's a number of uh, Instagram and Facebook channels now, and all the Spectrum guys and all the games guys all love showing off their, their you know, me too. You know, here's my, here's look, I have a copy. I have a copy and it's great crack, you know? Was it uh, suffered piracy? Did, did people pirate tapes? Yes, all of the time. Did that help it grow? It did actually, yes, because 
one of the things that I think at the time, my sort of view, and I had my own view of piracy, but everybody hates piracy, right? It, 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 the, uh, at the time, it wasn't considered... Uh, uh, it wasn't considered a real sort of crime as such, right? Because, you know, if you look at the first computers, the first Sinclair uh, ZX81 that came out, they had two models, right? There was the basic model that you could buy off the shelf, use it. It was £100. Now, that's, at the time, you know, that's huge money, but it's not, but at the time, it was the cheapest thing possible. Now, there was another version, uh, which you made, you bought in kit form that you made yourself, and it was £49. And that was like, look, if you're on the budget, you can make the machine yourself. Here's all the bits, do it yourself. Right. But in the same light, you know, some of the games were expensive and some of them were cheap. So what people would tend to do is, you know, the, you, the 80s was a very, very poor time, right? You know, and getting a job in Ireland, what, what, what were you up at 50% tax rate or 60% tax rate at the time? So it was something stupid, massive unemployment. So there's no money. So what you would do was you'd copy as many games as you could off your friends and then you would save up and buy the big game that you wanted so there was so uh, there was a uh, there was a very constructive industry around that so so a lot of the games company they, they didn't turn a blind eye to, to, to piracy but you know they tried to monitor it and you know protect it and uh, protect the industry but also you know give people some freedom right um and towards the latter days they did introduce copy protection on the uh on the cassettes and you were able to prevent a lot of them being copied and and they did sort of do that you know but but look it was i think it was one of those you know the the uh, uh it helped the i think it helped the industry right you know it's also something you know you can look at it now with youtube right? people a lot of bands put music out on youtube i listen to lots of stuff now is that piracy i don't know but does it help sales yes it does because I hear bands and I go, hey, I've never heard of these guys. Would never have heard of them otherwise. You know, I listen to some really crazy bands, you know. Uh, um, the uh, uh, Look up Baby Metal. There's a band for you, right? Uh, one of my favourite bands, right? I would never buy their album until I heard from, until I, uh, I had actually heard from them, if you know what I mean, on the, on the, on the web. Uh, you know, so I listened to them on the web, you know, and certainly, look, you know, that'd, that'd be, and I would certainly buy their album, you know. In terms of the, the consumer end of the market spectrum uh, from Sinclair was the leader in in, in much of the, the homes. Uh, the early days, there was the the one kilobit and the 16 kilobit, but then they, they got the kind of the ones with the tapes inside, like the two plus, I think. Uh, that was yeah. heading towards the, the latter 80s into the early 90s, maybe. Um, was was this... Um, was this the equipment getting much better, but the the whole industry in decline at that stage because the consoles were coming out and the PC gaming had started? No, I think the, uh, um, the at that stage the, the the industry was getting more mature. I wouldn't. It was still actually growing because, uh, like at that stage, the reason why they were able to bundle more stuff like that was it it appeared as a bigger, stronger product for people, and there was huge man. We all wanted that. You know, as like as you were saying, after the plus two came the plus three, which had a hard uh, floppy drive in it. So that was the first introduction to that. And we were saying, geez, you know, when the, when the plus two came out, we were saying, what you put a tape deck in for? You know, give us something like that we can really use, right? You know. So there was, the, so they tried a whole load of things internally. Now there wasn't that much difference. Uh, you know, and there's a few interesting conversations I've seen on the on the web recently about you know the internals of some of the spectrum they. They tried to get 
as much bang for the buck. It's almost like what they do now. You know, everything, there's an update and there's another upgrade and there's another upgrade and another upgrade. You know, why are we on the PlayStation 5 when my PlayStation 1 still works? Right? You know, there's always, I want a little bit better. Can you do a little bit better in here, a little bit, whatever, you know? So they're always trying to do that. Was there much money being made in the magazine end of it? Because I can imagine there was a lot of titles and there was a lot of following and then yes. everyone would go down to the news agent and these would be in your local news agents. You could, you know, into the mid eighties, you could buy these magazines and you would, you know, have articles in it or you'd be interviewed or your games would be released through them and they'd be reviewed yeah. in the magazines. I'd say the magazines were making a fair bit of money, were they? At the peak. I don't, I actually I don't, don't know the answer to that question. To be honest with you. Um, they may have been because they were, you know, the, 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 the big thing at the time, but I think they came, uh, they went and came very quickly. You know, I, I was actually astonished only recently because uh, there's another group I'm following which follows the magazines, right? Uh, like Sinclair User and things like that. And I, and I have uh, behind me here on the floor, I've got a couple of hundred, mags, about 400 magazines, right? But I actually noticed on Sinclair User, and I'd never noticed this before because obviously as a kid, I was in the game, the game thing. I have nearly all of them. You know, the guys were saying, start, you know what only started it? And I, so I've actually looked and I go, oh, Jesus, I have issue two issue three and then i have the last issue and i never realized you know that that was going on in the background but i think the, the games magazines they and it was very sad to see some of them disappear uh, but there was a couple of things going on with it. one obviously they did their thing and they had great great sales on that front but it was also used by people like myself just for publicity so i had a couple of games that were published on the games uh, uh, magazines and i literally gave them for free the magazines because it's just more publicity and free stuff for you you know what i mean um because that was part of getting your name out there and getting yourself popular i did an interesting game for your sinclair for example called ys capers uh, and i sat down one day and i said you know i've had lots of my games covered you know moonwalk and things like that but it never says damon scarborough is brilliant right so i was thinking how would i do how would i get that out there and i came up with this idea that i'll write a game uh based on operation wolf copy right uh with all of the editors of the magazine as the main characters. So I wrote them a letter and I said, you know, there are capers. Would you like a game where you're all the main characters and you get to shoot each other all day? And uh, I give it to you for free. If you put it on the cover and say, I'm brilliant. Uh, and they said, yes, that was a great idea. So, so playing playing off their ego. <laughs> but anyway, uh, I thought it was great. And they gave me a nice, a nice, and it's a good game, actually, believe it or not. Um, you know, short three-level game. Uh, but anyway, that was I just did that for the crack, uh, and uh, it was fun. And then I had another game published where, uh, what again, if you if I go back to what I was saying to you, one of the things I used to do was every game that I produced, I tried to push something, uh, try something new. Well, how can I make better sound? How can I make fa faster graphics? So there's a game I wrote called Surface Tension, which I also re released. I think that was on Crash Cover Tape, right? Um, uh, and it's an impossibly difficult game to play because it's too fast, right? So I'll tell you that, right? Matter of fact, right? <laughs> the, uh, and the reason why it's too fast was I was working on how could I get parallax scrolling work as fast as I physically could, and that game was that was that was the 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 exercise, right? Uh, in implementing that, so I managed to achieve what I wanted to do in, in terms of right. Technically, I know how to do it now. And I shipped the game. You know, they can have the game for free. Oh, but I know, I know how to do it now. And that was like, it's like college. You know, that's my learning exercise.
And would that be the origin of parallax? Because I would have kind of come across it in web design that it, it's it's this kind of a wall moving behind a character uh, at a different pace to the character walking up the street. That would would that be a description of parallax? Yeah, that is exactly it. Uh, I, I don't know where I think the originally where I sort of learned about parallax scrolling is from Disney films. You know, that's how they would have done. You know, you, you know Mickey Mouse walking by in a tree, walking by, walking behind him in front of. It's a very uh, good way of producing depth uh, like you know even if you're looking at any games nowadays you know you have uh, if, if you have something moving in front of you it, it adds a sort even though it might be a 2d game it makes it look like it has depth to the characters and things like that it's very so it's a good way of doing it and you can do a huge huge amount with it now and you see some really fantastic games using it you know there's also some cheats as well with the spectrum you can do but that's another story i did a very small amount of research for this interview and i learned that uh, pixel graphics uh, has its origins in embroidery. So the the little square things that they're on a grid yes. and people embroider to pixels on a grid. I was going to ask you a completely geeky question. You mentioned um, the graphics resolution of some of the old systems. Would the pixels yeah. have been square or anamorphic? It would all have been square. So so and that that was sort of one of the sort of the tricky bits, you know. So um the, uh, we actually, I know in my very first games, I would use the graph paper. You know the graph paper you use in school? We still, I still have some. That's exactly it, Brian. And that is, that's exactly how we do That's exactly what you use. And you sit there and you draw your characters, right? You're not secretly um, programming or anything. This is just happens to be. I know. I don't have any here sitting around my desk to show you, but I do have some, right? But in terms of one of the things that you'd have to do, and this is the challenge with, 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 with graphics, is that, the, the bigger a character or the wider a character, the more memory it takes, right? So on an 8-bit machine, you can only blast eight of those dots in one go. So when you have your little graphic paper up, right, eight of them is the unit of blast, right? So if you had nine, it means you have to blast two of them. If that makes sense to you, right? If you have 16, you blast two. If you have 17, it's three, because you need three eights. You only, if, even if it's only one pixel, you need to take all eight. So right. gunfire in the horizontal will be more difficult than gunfire in the vertical. Is that what you're saying? Gunfire in horizontal and vertical. So if, the, if you're... Um, no, actually, uh, well, that actually be... A, yes, yes, it would be, yeah. Gunfire horizontal, because you'd have to have... You'd have to move the pixel across. It'd be, it's a bit of a, yeah, it's a bit of a nightmare, yeah. So... So the reason why I tell you that then is right because when you had graphics, when we designed our graphics, you were typically a graphic woman. So that's why if you look at games like Target Renegade, for example, you notice they're all very thin little guys and they sort of shuffle around like this, right? Yeah. So the reason why they're very thin little guys is because if I had to do that and put my arm out, it's another character I'd have to draw, which is more memory and more space. So wide characters... So we'll take up more space. That's why if you look at a lot of old games, a lot of the characters are very square. But it's not square because the graphic artists couldn't draw. It's square because they were saying, right, I want you to, here's the box, draw me a man that can run up and down in that box. And would the same principle give you games that were very kind of like coming down elevators rather than going from left to right? Would, would it give you a lot of kind of downward donkey going up a, a maze kind of? Not not necessarily, right? But it certainly would have an impact on the games. That that that, that so when when you wrote um, any type of game, you certainly would take the processing power into consideration. 
So for I'll give you another, another sort of simpler example to understand, right? The spectrum screen is, is 6K, right? But it's controlled by three chips. So there's a 2K chip, another 2K chip, and another 2K chip, right? 2K memory, right? So that gives you the screen. So if you wanted to save space, you just didn't use the bottom one and you just drew on the top of the screen. So it's 4K. So if you look at a lot of Spectrum games, you'll see that they have this big bar. The scoreboard is all on the bottom and they only scroll the top section. And that's that's because it's faster, right? You don't have to do anything. You only just update the bottom level and it's no, no big deal if it's slow. And there are things like that, like Commodore 64, for example, had uh, hardware sprites. So do, do, to produce a scrolly game with spaceships is really easy on this Commodore 64. Well, relatively speaking, right? Yeah, but the, all the hardware is built to do that. So you'll see then a lot of Commodore 64 games, there's some, the best shoot 'em ups like R-Type and things like that are on the Commodore 64, right? Because they're just, just brilliant to do it. To do that on the Spectrum, you've got to be good. Now, R-Type on the Spectrum is one of the best Spectrum games ever. Uh, and if anybody's any interest, there is a book written by the developer who wrote that game uh, on how he did it. Uh, I haven't actually read it myself, uh, but I hear great things about it. I, I certainly would, you know, would would, uh, would recommend anybody to, to, to buy it if you're interested in that space because it's the best conversion ever. There's a big revival going on. Can you explain this in some sort of way? Is it um, midlife crisis for some people delving back into their youth? Or what's what's driving this revival in eight bit games and games of of the past and arcade as well? Arcades coming back, isn't it? Yeah, that's a it's a weird one, Brian. Right? To be honest with you, I don't know. Uh, I have I'd have my I'd share my opinion with you, right? I think it's uh, partially these old men, right? So like me, <laughs> so going through the, the childhood memories, right? But I think also part of it is the uh, the environment is changing, right? Um, as I was saying to you, I had an interesting interview I looked at recently from Andrew Houston from Houston Games, and he was saying that he got back into games about six years ago because the the Apis stuff was all gone in the past, right? Finished with, right? Um, but what's happening now is that that some of the bigger games, that you know, the, the big studio games, they're so big, it's just like you know. You know, I don't want to spend 150 euros on a game. Thank you very much, right? You know, uh, it's a, and and spend 55 million hours playing with my friends and never have a life, right? The, uh, and I'm not I'm not knocking any of those games, but I'm just saying, as a perspective, there are people saying, look, I don't want that anymore. Uh, the market has opened up. That there are the emulators to play the old games are available now, and they are phenomenally good. This asked, asked, you know, I have to. Give the guys credit where credit is due, right? They're really good, right? Uh, so if you look back six years ago, they were crap, but they have got all the bugs out and now they're really good, right? That has opened up people where the likes of myself are able to look back at old stuff. And there are people saying, well, hang on a second. You know, if you look back at like what you, like where you've come to me, Brian, and you've said, well, what was it like in the games industry in the eighties? Do you do realize that we'd started some of this in Ireland? And there were a bunch of guys. What happened to those guys? So there are people now taking a, a step back and looking at the games industry and saying, you know, what's happening? You know, you can also flip this the other way around that with the success of the games industry, this is now big business now in Ireland, right? Um, and there are some really good people and some really big players. And they are looking around saying, well, actually, where, where did we all come from? What happened? You know, where is the talent? You know, and how, you know, sort of how, so it's, 
for some reason, you know, maybe it's it's part of, you know, this is the new, uh, maybe it's my, I'm looking at even at my own children now who are 20, 21, right? And that age group are now looking around at the world saying, well, what is life in the universe, life in the universe all about? What are we actually doing? You know, and they are looking back and saying, hang on, there are some, there's some talent that was around here. Uh, so I think that's, that sort of generated some of it as well. Uh, and then it's just pure interest, you know what I mean? So it, it, because of the, you may, we are also coming to a sort of a stage where you can pick up some of this hardware very cheap or very cheaply, should I say. Uh, you know, you, I'm looking at yesterday you know, on, on the web yesterday, I was thinking about buying a Nintendo, you know, handheld. You know, as a child, I could never afford one because they were like too expensive, but I got over 50 euros now. You know, and, you know, that's something I could I, I can work with, you know. Uh, as I said, like some of the PC stuff that I have at the moment, I've dug out of Attics. I've, um, you know, bought a few bits and pieces, that, you know, 50 euros here, 100 euros there. Just simple things. But because there's a huge, you know, it's like going back to Betamax, right? In Betamax, you didn't have the depth of product. There's a huge depth of product. And I said, well, 100 euros, I have 55,000 games I can play. <laughs> you know what I mean? So so I think it's, it's it, it has come from, the world itself, looking at the world, looking at what's going on, has come from uh, sort of at the right time, at the, and it's come from the success that the new games developers are having. The big games industry has become massive. It's it's bigger than all the other media combined: television and film yes. and radio. Absolutely enormous, and bigger than music. Was it a surprise to you that games? would go the way it seems to have done it under the radar. I'd say most people don't realize that the the billions and trillions that's in the games is not yeah. in no it's not in uh, radio, is not in uh, TV. Yeah, none of this is a surprise to me. To be absolutely strange. This is not a surprise. And it will continue to grow. One of the things that was very very much overlooked in the past is that games is a global market. A, a little guy running around chasing, collecting stars and doing its thing, you know, you can play that in any language. So the translation is easy. You can play it anywhere in the world. And, you know, what's the difference between a little kid in China and a little kid in Dublin? Nothing is the answer, right? They can play, they both want to have fun, right? You know, and in terms of, so from that point of view, that means the market is global and, and the world is becoming smaller. You know, so so because the world is becoming smaller, the market is getting bigger. That's one part, one aspect of it, right? The other aspect of it was that people like me, when we were developing games, we, uh, and I can tell you for a fact, we pushed our machines to their limits, absolute limits, right? We were doing things the machines couldn't do uh, in terms of sound, in terms of music, and we had the vision. So the vision was there to create stuff. You know, we did want to have cool music. We did want to have cool graphics. Now, that uh, technology is available. I can look at, I, I can produce full games sitting here, you know, it, it, on a normal PC. I can download a, a full music studio. You know, uh, the, I can do almost anything that a, that a film production company could do 20 years ago in a production set in my bedroom. So if you look at that, you know, the where I have ideas, like, for example, I have ideas around music and stuff like that. And I play the piano. I'm writing soundtracks now for games, right? I have ideas at the time in the games business, we had, anime. if you look at the start of Moonwalker, the video game, we had Michael Jackson's feet coming on and it was a little video animation thing. Now almost killed us to do that on a spectrum, but now I'll probably shoot the whole thing on video and produce it now. And so that has merged video games, music, 
and filmmaking. Like Scattergood Studios, for example, I have, I'm currently working on a film script for some short films I want to produce as part of that because he produced the film, which produces the music, which produces the game. So they're all a suite of, it's a creative suite. So if you look at where the games business is right now, the games business is a, a piece of the multimedia business. And that's actually where the, the industry is going. I, and I see like, Ireland is in a very strong position right now because we have lots of artistic talent. You know, you know the talent that sits around us in terms of music. Like my brother plays is in bands. He's been in bands for thirty years. You know, I have, I, I, I don't need to go looking for a musician. I, I, I see musicians every single day. You know, graphic artists in the same in Ireland, creative thoughts, ideas. You know, I'm looking. You know, there's stuff I see. If you look at even uh, you know the likes of. Uh, Dermot Douglas Grania from from um, Fado Fado and Kilcullen and all those stories, right? Someone should do a proper game on that. You know, the, the Red Branch Knights, like, you know, you look, that's, you know, it's another hobbit. You know, I know, you know, they, 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 the content is there. It's already written. So, you know, there's, there's a, so I can only see, you know, that, that it will continue to expand and will continue to expand in lots of new areas. It might do something for Irish tourism, like, Game of Thrones did for Northern Irish tourism as well. Um, I'm going to have to wrap up because I'm being dragged away here. But just give us um, a shout out for your itch channel and uh, where can people contact you about the, the studios? Yeah, well, if any, the main website is scattergood.io. Uh, and that's a, as simple as one as you can get. Yeah, you can search for Damien Scattergood on the internet. I'm very, very easy to find. Uh, and if you go to itch.io, which is the main, main game channel, you just search for Scattergood Studios and you'll find what I'm doing there. And there's links back to the, my Instagram channel and things like that. Follow me on Instagram as well at, at uh, Scattergood Studios uh, and you'll see what we're doing. Brilliant. You've been very generous with your time today. The most famous developer you never heard of was Damien Scattergood and he's at scattergoodstudios.io. Thank you very much for your time today. Cheers, Brian. Thanks very much. Thanks, Brian.